Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Vanessa Peters. Vanessa has a great book out, The Busy Professional's Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. She's been on the show before. We're having her back on to talk about all those great topics, and she has a lot more to uh, to discuss with us today that we didn't cover on the last appearance. I got a lot of great feedback from listeners that asked if she would come back on the show again. So I'm happy to have her back on the show. For those of you who missed her first appearance on the show, she is the founder of VMD Investing, and she has been investing in real estate for 10 years, including single family homes, commercial retail, apartment communities, self-storage, and manufactured home communities, also called mobile home parks. She's invested in over 2,500 units across six properties and two funds. She's passionate about helping busy professionals build wealth through passive income producing real estate that provides attractive returns that proven roadmap to financial freedom. We talked about some of her interesting experiences, uh, investing things that went well, things that didn't go well on the last interview. So once you're done with this, I highly, highly encourage you to go back and listen to the interview. It was published in September of 2019. So definitely recommend uh, you go back and listen to that. Uh, she earned her medical degree at the University of Calgary, Alberta in Canada. She also has a thriving full-time family practice in Escondido, California. She is a doctor, so we're getting into that doctor personal finance topic today. She's very involved in her community and is a board member at Interfaith Community Services. She lives in Escondido, California with her husband and son. Got to talk with her uh, husband a little bit the last time we recorded and sounds like uh, things are going well there. So Vanessa, thank you for coming back on the show today. Happy to talk with you again. Oh, thank you for inviting me back. I'm very excited. So, uh, you know, it's, it's been a couple of months since we last spoke. Like I said, I got a lot of uh, positive feedback from listeners about your last appearance on the show. Uh, but for folks who didn't hear, I gave you a little introduction, but what are you doing right now in uh, real estate? Well, right now I continue to invest in multifamily syndications when I can find a appropriate deal. They are getting a little harder to find. I'm also still pretty bullish on self-storage and hope to get into um, another fund or maybe a single asset play with um, like a JV with some partners. Um, I'm also dabbling in short-term real estate. I purchased a condo in Maui a couple of months ago. Cool. Um, not passive, <laughs> so, um, but I just uh, thought it might be fun because we do enjoy going to Maui. So it is a good income producer as well as someplace that we can go as a family. So, and then focusing on the book and, and launching the book right now. That's great. That's great. And, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought up the the short-term rentals, the Airbnb model. A lot of people are familiar with that, uh, whether we stay in Airbnbs or we know people who are doing the Airbnb strategy. But if you watch anybody that does it, you know, most people, like you said, are not passive uh, in that type of investment. And, and like I said, during the introduction, your book is the busy professional's guide to passive real estate investing. Let's define some terms here to you. Uh, you know, what do you define as a busy professional? We'll break it down. So uh, yeah, busy professional, someone who generally will be working full time and their job is, you know, taking a lot of their time, either mentally or physically. They have to either be in the office or they have work long hours. So that's a busy professional to me. 
not a lot of time left over for anything other than, you know, family and, and maybe a hobby. And what about passive real estate? This is another topic we talked about before, but uh, people tend to mistake, like, like you said about the, the uh, short-term rental, people mistake all real estate for being just passive real estate. But what's the difference? What is really passive in real estate? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the IRS, unfortunately, defines most real estate as, as passive, which isn't yeah. really fair because it's not. Um, but they passed a law in the 80s that stated that all rental income was passive unless you're a real estate professional, which is a shame for those people that are busy professionals because back in that day, um, you know, my financial advisor told me he would tell doctors and dentists to go and buy 10 homes and that would literally wipe out their W-2 income. Wow. But now you have a very low threshold for using those deductions, those passive losses. So passive investing is where you are not actively the uh, owner of the building or the property. You have not got a mortgage on the property, you didn't sign for the loan, and you have limited liability. You don't make decisions on the property. Nobody's calling you to make any kind of decisions or fix anything or pay for anything. So once you have invested in this type of a deal uh, that is truly passive, all of your work is up front. You need to do your due diligence on the deal, make sure that you like it, that you trust the operator, that you trust your connection with the operator. Um, you've you know, reviewed the numbers as much as you care to. And then you wire your money. You sign the PPM, the private placement memorandum, and you wire your money and literally the only work you have to do after that is to check and make sure that the uh, direct deposit or the check came in the mail and review the financials quarterly and, and hopefully get monthly updates from your, uh, from your connection with the operator. Good summary. I uh, stated this on the show before. I hate wiring money. Even, even if I know for a fact it's going to the right place, I still hate doing it. It's throwing a ball over a fence and hoping it lands in you know the right yard or the right bucket. But it's a reality of what we do in real estate. And, you know, I wanted to, we, we talked before we started recording, uh, you mentioned the fire movement and I want to make sure we bring that up and, and compare and contrast, you know, your values and strategy to maybe the values and the strategy and strategy of the fire movement in general, that for those who are not aware, that's financially independent retire early or financial independence retire early. You can break it out a bunch of ways. There's a lot of interest in that for busy professionals who want to retire early. And, you know, what does that mean to you? What do you think about it? And, you know, let's get into it. Sure. I, um, about eight years ago, five to eight years ago, I went on a kick. I mean, maybe that's when fire really kind of took off, but I started to read about it and, wasn't sure I really wanted to retire early, but I wanted to have lots of money. So I was like, <laughs> hey, let's, let's do it. And this was before I really got back into real estate. Uh, as I told you before in, in the previous episode, I uh, bought a single family home in 2008, which went really well, but I kind of didn't think about real estate for another 10 years. So uh, this was before, before I was back in real estate and I wanted to accumulate a lot of wealth and became very interested in the idea of, um, of fire movement. And so much so that I, you know, my, I became obsessed with being frugal and buying all kinds of books that are, you know, how to save money on groceries. I think one was called America's cheapest family. I mean, literally. <laughs> and, uh, and I was reading all kinds of ways to save energy 
um, I bought one of those energy meters that you plug into outlets mm. and then you plug in the appliance. And I had a spreadsheet where I was recording how much the toaster used and how much the blow dryer used and um, how much my husband's <laughs> musical equipment uses. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I also started tracking our, our um, energy use on the home as a whole with the meter and we got solar panels, which was awesome. Um, but it, we weren't covering all of our uh, energy uses with the solar panels. So I was, uh, I was kind of, getting in a little deep with that and sort of losing the forest for the trees because, uh, or the other way around, maybe trees for the forest. But um, I found that I was nickel and diming everything and not wanting to spend five bucks or 10 bucks. And maybe mm -hmm. we should cancel Netflix or something like that. When we're talking about saving millions of dollars to retire, you know, and the fire movement, sometimes people mention that they get to a million and then they retire. Well, I don't really want to retire and live frugally from the age of 40 on in which, you know, a lot of people seem okay with. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, my expenses are more than that right now. I can't imagine if I retired now and only had $5,000 to live off of uh, a month, you know, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be okay. So, I mean, fat fire is another term out there. Uh, yeah. which is basically retire early, but with a really good income. And I'm more about that. Um, but even more so, I think a lot of busy professionals still like what they do. And so they don't necessarily want to retire, quote unquote. And I think there's great value in trying to uh, have fun now and distribute many retirements throughout your working life so that you can continue to be rejuvenated and enjoy your work. And the beauty of having a passive income that say covers most or maybe you know three quarters of your kind of basic expenses it allows you to get out there and enjoy the world and then work because you choose to not because you have to i think it's it's definitely interesting i went through my own little you know time of trying to be a uh, very frugal as well years ago uh, well, initially, right after I, I got out of college and started having some money and I decided I'm, I'm going to hoard this and not spend it. And, you know, my accounts were correspondingly larger as a result of that. But you know, ultimately, it, you're not um, when you're living that way, you're not living a life of abundance. You're not, you know, probably not really enjoying yourself. I, I don't know. Some people can certainly be happy uh, living that way, but not everyone can. And I think we need to delineate between turning the thermostat down to 61 degrees to save a little bit of energy in the winter and, and, you know, cut your costs that way, uh, from let's not be foolish with our money. And, you know, the lottery is never a good investment. So I think their advice is probably relevant to some people who, whose money is really not right. But for the purposes of our discussion, we're talking about people who are making, you know, good money, accredited investors who, are looking to plan for that retirement down the road and not necessarily trying to retire next year, or two years from now. Right. And the other thing is that, um, you know, they, they have, you know, the book out there, I think the latte factor, things like that. So those again are small dollars. And so for those of those of us who are high earners, being extremely frugal, isn't going to move the needle as much as really a couple other things. One of which is making great investments that get you better than 8% which is, you know, real estate syndications provide, you know, on, on average a 20% cash on cash return. Um, it's gone, it's going down a little bit, but so, or, you know, you want to make your money work for you harder and smarter. And, and then the other thing is tax. So, you know, 
when your investments are tax leveraged and aren't taxed on capital gains, and when you keep more of what you earn, you're essentially making more right out of the gate. And that will make such a big difference to your net worth compared to um, scrimping and saving on electricity or, or things like that, or the coffee. Yeah, you're focused on, it's more of a focus on growing your income than trying to cut your expenses down as low as possible because there's only so low you can really go. I mean, you can't, you can't possibly spend $0 on your life and if you keep cutting things away that you enjoy, then you're not enjoying your life. Right. And, you know, I'm not talking about having a, you know, 5,000 square foot house and a full-time <laughs> housekeeper, you know, and, and several nice cars, just living a modest life, but enjoying it. You know, if, you, if it's important to you to have a, a nice car, then, then get it. But the way that I bought my car um, after having my old car for 14 years was I waited until I had passive income that would cover the payment. So, you know, and because it's a business, um, I didn't have to pay tax, you know, on the interest and, you know, the payments were deductible and things like that. So it, you know, it was, um, it was nice to have that payment covered by passive income. So I wasn't, I felt like I deserved it at that point, instead of buying the nice car when you first get out of school, um, when you've got a lot of other debt. Yeah. So this kind of leads into the topic of lifestyle creep that a lot of high income earners tend to, you know, can, can fall, fall uh, prey to, or however you want to think about it. And, you know, golden handcuffs, whatever, however, whatever you want to term that or call that. What do you think about, um, you know, how can we <laughs> fix that? I mean, there, there are, are folks out there who are, have already, their lifestyle is already crept and, and they need to, to winnow it back. And there are folks out there, you know, I know that there are a couple of physicians that listen who are on the younger side that are aware of that lifestyle creep and need to avoid it. So from, from your perspective as a doctor, I'm sure you've seen a lot of your colleagues' lives you know, creep upward over time, and maybe some of them have successfully you know, cut it back. So you know, let's get into that topic of lifestyle creep for the, for the high income earner. What are, you know, what are your thoughts there? Educate me on that. Yeah. So I think that you, know, you got to start with your house because it's the biggest expense you're going to have. And, you know, if you, if you buy an expensive home and I live in Southern California and San Diego, it's expensive to buy houses here, but I've seen my colleagues buy homes that were too big and, you know, lose them in the downturn, you know, 10, 12 years ago, unfortunately. And then others who are so, they have such massive mortgages that they don't have any money left to invest in real estate right now and kind of missing the boat, I feel. So I would say that, um, you know, you need to not get a ginormous house. You don't need a giant house. And when I go to their house, yeah, I'm a little jealous that they've got the master bedroom that's like as big as all three of the bedrooms in my house and the bathroom that's as big as my bedroom <laughs> and the closet, you know, yes, those are nice things to have. But um, again, going back to earning passive income, I can justify stuff if I have some passive income to support it. If it's, if it's just a liability, which your home is a liability, it shouldn't take up, you know, three quarters or, you know, or I don't know what percentage it would be. It depends on how much you earn, but it shouldn't be um, $5,000 a month mortgage. That's way, way too much. You wow. know, and there's a lot of people out there that spend that here in Southern California. That's, that's an incredible amount of money to spend on a mortgage uh, to me. So have you, uh, from your observation, is that the, sounds like that's the biggest mistake that a lot of say doctors 
tend to make. It's it's first it's the house, then you know, what comes next? Is it the cars for men? Is yeah. it you know other stereotypical things so, for women, or what is it? it yeah, it's basically um, you buy the nice house, and um, of course, along with the house comes your electricity and your water, and that's expensive here. So yeah. you, and then you've got a pool, but you got to heat, and then got to buy solar panels and um and then you have to maintain it so you need a gardener and you probably need a housekeeper so you've got a whole lot of help that comes along with it and then all of a sudden it goes from this much to this much you know 25 percent more and then um you're in a nice neighborhood so your neighbors all have teslas and range rovers you know god you don't want to be driving your nissan around so you get a nice car and <laughs> and um and then if you're lucky you're in a neighborhood which has good public schools um, but that's the next thing is if your neighborhood doesn't have the best schools, then you need to go to maybe a private school. And there are some very expensive prep schools out here. Um, and not even all prep schools, some of the Christian schools, um, they're like $9,000 a year. And people are paying this from, you know, grade school and up. And it gets more expensive as you get older into high school. It's like 15, 20. I mean, I can't even fathom spending that much on a child's education and then not even in college yet. So uh, those are the big three expenditures, cars, education, and, um, and your house. Interesting. So have you found that are, are people more willing to say, move into, you know, sell the house, move into something smaller and maybe instead of drive the, you know, model X all tricked out, switch to a model three, you know, how, how willing are people to, so to speak, compromise on their children's education. I mean, I went to public school. It was fine. You know, I've got no problems with it, but um, you know, what, what tends to be less negotiable than others. I haven't seen a lot of people downsizing. Mm. No, I see older people downsizing, you know, and that's normal, but I don't see the, the professionals downsizing. So is it, um, I, I suppose the solution is, don't let your lifestyle creep in the first place because it's easier. Absolutely. <laughs> because then once you've got the nice neighborhood, you've got the kids in school and you really, you don't want to uproot them. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to go down instead of up because that's what we've been taught is that you, you buy a starter home and then you get the nice big home after that. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I suppose that makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense is it's, it's harder to give up what you have than it is to, not, you know, buy this, that stuff in the first place. Do you think, um, I mean, there, there's this topic that comes up that, you know, I, I've seen with some of my friends, one of my friends is a, an ER doctor, a friend from, uh, jujitsu and, you know, this guy, I don't know what hours he works, but he's, I think the, the chief of medicine at the doctor, he's, he's got a high up position. Mm -hmm. And, uh, when I see him at the gym, he's, pale as a ghost because he just got off a you know 24-hour shift where there wasn't a break and you know have you I, I can't imagine that he's going to want to do that until he's in his 50s you know and then start thinking about how am I going to prepare for retirement at that point so you know have you seen a lot of burnout among doctors and you know are they preparing adequately for being burned out down the road and saying I want to get out of this, but they aren't financially prepared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, burnout is a massive problem in, um, in the U.S. right now. 50% uh, of doctors show at least one symptom of burnout. 
Um, and, you know, burnout is, you know, just having um, an attitude that maybe you're not making a difference, um, feel kind of hopeless about life and your work, and you can start feeling depressed too. And being the, the physician leader at my group, you know, I'm sort of responsible for the happiness of the doctors. Um, and so I asked them how they're feeling. And unfortunately, a lot of them, and this is in hospital setting as well as outpatient setting, um, they're, they're, they're not as happy as they should be. I would like to see them happier. And the reason is, especially ER has a high burnout rate because they do work uh, super fast paced, long hours. And it's hard to maintain that over time. And the outpatient docs were, were we are, you know, meaning to see four patients an hour. It just isn't enough time. And when you spend as much time documenting after in the chart as you did with the patient, you know, it, it gets tough. And then there's all the paperwork on top of it and, and things like that. I mean, so from a system standpoint, I, I, I'm trying my best to maybe create some ways at work that we can work less hard, but the system is the system and we mm -hmm. get paid to see patients. And so the clinics want you to see lots of patients. Um, and unfortunately, I feel like we don't feel like we have choices. So the other thing is that we're so busy all the time that when you're done with work, you certainly aren't going to go pick up a book on investing. Um, you know, you, you're just going to do what your financial advisor recommends you do, which is max out your 401k. Um, you know, maybe you have an HSA account you can put money into. Uh, and then if there's enough in there, you can invest it. But that's not very much money every year, 6000 or something. Um, and there's not a lot of alternative ideas out there. So I think a lot of docs put their money into maybe CDs or money market account. If, if they like the stock market, they might put their money in there. But what are you putting it in after the 401k? You know, I don't... Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I know the stock market well enough to start choosing stocks. You know, I've, I've got my, my little 401k with, you know, the index fund in there, but I certainly don't want to put a whole ton of money in there. But what else are you going to do? You're busy. You've got your family. Um, hopefully you have a couple hobbies or you're exercising. That doesn't leave a lot of room uh, unless you're, and a lot of people know that real estate is a good way to make money, but how the heck do you get started? That's a tough question. I mean, uh, that, if anybody, you know, anybody out there is on bigger pockets, that question literally comes up, I don't know, tens of times a day. And then it's been addressed many, many times, but, you know, people don't even know where to start in the sense of, you know, where to search for the answer, you know, let alone a, an answer that they feel is tailored to their specific, their situation in that, you know, I'm a doctor, high income, and I'm sick of it, or I'm going to be sick of it, I think in probably five years. So how do I kind of plan my escape. Now you mentioned that you're working on some ways in, in your world for the, the folks under your charge to, you know, keep them satisfied. What have you done or implemented to, you know, improve their way of life? Because you can't, you can't change the overall system, but there's probably some things that, you know, you can do, hopefully there's some things that you can do to make their lives better. So, uh, what have you done? Well, um, the sabbatical was something. I, um, I implemented a sabbatical policy at work so that you have the opportunity as one of our senior physicians to take six weeks off every five years. So, I mean, in the big picture, maybe it isn't much, but having the trip of a lifetime in your 40s instead of waiting until your late 60s, I think that's a big deal, especially if your kids are young. Because in your 60s, obviously, your kids are going to be grown and they probably don't want to travel with you for six weeks through Europe. <laughs> and I hope they don't. <laughs> right. right. And so that's one thing I've done. I've also increased the PTO or the unpaid time off, actually, for some of the senior docs. Um, I'm working on models to 
take some of the administrative load off the physicians because even though we're a physician-owned group, we still have the doctors do a lot of work that isn't in the highest and best use with their license. So how do we make money? We see patients. How do we not make money? By filling out forms, by signing off stuff and um, you know, doing a lot of busy work, um, which has to be done. But mm -hmm. um, there are folks in the office who can help with that. So I'm implementing a care team model whereby we'll have a little bit of additional support staff and an, um, an advanced practitioner, which is like a PA or a nurse practitioner that kind of pair up with two or three docs and take some of their workload off them so they can see more patients and hopefully be happier about it. That's smart. That's a very uh, business owner, uh, probably Kiyosaki type of mentality that you're going to have the the higher paid higher earning people focusing on the thing that's going to make the business the most money and put a system in place that will kind of cover some of those lower dollar per hour tasks with lower dollar per hour labor that you know those folks are probably still paid pretty well but not nearly as high as a, a doctor and and the doctors aren't like you said they're they're putting their time to the highest and best use which is is seeing patients correct and we get to charge more for doctors seeing patients rather than an ap for example i didn't invent it you know it's out there but i'm just working on implementing it nice nice so i want to circle back up to this you know how do you get started topic how do you get started as a real estate investor topic and and maybe if we can you know put some some hard figures on it because if you say I mean, it's hard to, to come up with something blanket, but if you say, all right, max out your 401k, all right, there's a hard number. We know what the maxing up of the 401k is. Max out your HSA, okay, that's a number. Those come from the government. Um, but if a physician's getting started figuring out how do I become a real estate investor, you suggest investing in syndication so you know we can say stick to that topic. And for those who need more information as to why go listen to the other episode and you'll <laughs> you'll learn why um but what do you recommend as far as you know people getting their feet in the water or you know time frames or how much money should they have you know, ready to to get invested and for the sake of argument let's say you know we're talking to an accredited investor somebody who can invest in 506b and 506c syndication so how do they get started yeah so um the, the accredited investor status is important because most of the deals do require you to be an accredited investor, even if they're 506B, which technically allows 35 non-accredited investors. The operators I've been working with haven't been allowing non-accredited, unfortunately. Uh, but I think they're changing the rules. There's some talk of l making them a little more lax so that other people can get in. Like you can be more of a sophisticated investor, but... Um, the 506B deals do require a prior substantive relationship with the operator. So that's really important to know. You can be ready to jump in on a deal, but first of all, you have to know about it and you have to know the operator first. So if you wait until the last minute and say, say for example, you're on my investor list and I've sent out a monthly update or a, a newsletter, and then I send out a deal alert. Hey, there's a great deal in, um, in Austin, Texas for this apartment complex. And then you contact me and you're like, this is it. I want to invest. I'm ready. I've, I've researched this operator. I, I, I like the returns. I like the location. I like the deal, but I don't know you. So you can't. So it's really important to establish relationships with a couple of different people in the field 
before you want to invest. This is 506B. 506C is different. You'll see those advertised and you can invest in those, but you do need to be proven that you are an accredited investor. So usually most operators require $50,000 for the first deal. Sometimes they allow 25,000 for the second deal, but um, most of them are 50K. So if you have that on hand, that's a good place to get started and get your feet wet. And really there's no better way to start learning really truly about investing than actually doing it. So having, um, you know, the, the old analysis paralysis and, you know, talking to a bunch of people, analyzing a bunch of deals and looking at them, but never pulling the trigger, you'll never learn as well as if you actually invest in a deal because then you're going to be completely, um, you'll have skin in the game, obviously. And so you're going to read the PPM differently than if you're just kind of scanning it, thinking about it. You'll, you'll look at the numbers, you'll look at the sensitivity analysis if you're into that stuff. And um, so you'll learn a lot faster. And in the, at the end of the day, if you're an accredited investor, $50,000, um, it seems like a lot of money, but you can earn it back. You know, mm -hmm. and the chance of losing your money in these deals is so absolutely remote. Um, it might not hit the targets if we hit a ma massive downturn, but you're not going to lose your money, especially shouldn't lose your initial principal. Hopefully not. As long as it, you know, as long as you don't lose the property, then theoretically you shouldn't lose your investment. Uh, but I, I think you brought up a good point in the the potential for loss and the fear of loss prevents everyone, all of us. Uh, who are humans from doing a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And that can sometimes include uh, investing in a real estate deal. And, and like you said, for an accredited investor, $50,000, I mean, let's be real, $50,000 is a lot of money. But for someone who meets the accredited definition, they're going to get it back. So, you know, if a deal goes completely south and, and belly up and all that, then, all right, yeah, that sucks, but it's not the end of the world. Um, but how do we... I mean, this, this topic has been covered up and down, but how do we make sure as syndication investors, especially first time, that we're not going to get swindled? You know, we're, we're investing with somebody that isn't going to, you know, go to the Cayman Islands with our money and, and disappear forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're getting started, that's a tough question. What do you do? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I always recommend that the team is the most important part of the deal. It doesn't matter if it's a great location, if the numbers are amazing, yeah, if the building is beautiful, it doesn't matter if the team isn't someone that is trustworthy. So how do you figure that out is the question. Um, you need to develop relationships with people. So the, the team should have a track record, obviously, and they should have um, transparency. So you should be able to look at their previous deals and hopefully get to talk to them Hopefully, you know, you have um, something that you can listen to them speaking. Um, if they have, you know, podcast episodes you can listen to, that's super helpful, that kind of thing. So I always recommend trying to get to know the operator a little bit. Um, and if you're, a, a, you know, someone who's like, for example, I work with different operators. And so I'm, I'm your liaison through the operator. And so then you get to know me. And then, you know, I can assure you, you know, hey, I've invested in five deals with this operator and they're doing extremely well. So nobody wants to be the first one to invest with an operator. And if there's someone who just got out of a course and they're all fired up about it, that's awesome. But I'm not going to invest with that person because I, I need to see some numbers that they've performed well in the past before I invest with them. And I always try to invest with my own money before I bring in any investors so that I know that they're going to be um, on the up and up as well as you know, most people have good intentions, but sometimes it turns out that the business plan wasn't that well thought out. Maybe the numbers weren't 
Um, maybe they made them too rosy, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And how, I mean, it's, it's even, it could be even softer things. How good is the communication? Are they proactive? Mm-hmm. Do they respond to emails? All of those uh, very important things, you know, uh, for, as, as I think about this, I think that's actually the, the, the team aspect and, and the vetting. That's actually one of the advantages of the 506B and confining yourself to the 506B rather than the 506C in that you say, okay, I'm only going to do 506B deals where I have to know the, the sponsor beforehand because I have to know the sponsor beforehand and I'm not going to go to somebody I don't know with a 506C deal who I don't know him from anybody else. I don't know his track record or, or her or whatever. Um, so that could be one of the advantages of saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to stick to the 506B deals where I have to know the sponsor first so that maybe potentially I re- reduce some of that counterparty risk. Mm-hmm. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I mean, the 506C is definitely casting a wider net, you know, because they can advertise and they don't need to talk to you. You can literally sign up without talking to a single person. And I prefer not to do it that way. (laughs) Um, Even on the 506C deals that I've been in on, of course, I'm talking to people about it, but there is a way to do it without speaking to anybody. And and so I agree, there's, there's a little bit more of a relationship. It's more relationship business with the 506B. Yeah, I find that to be... I don't know, shocking that folks invest in, in deals that they've never, they never speak to the sponsor. And I don't know, for me, it would have to be such a marginal amount of money at risk to not know the sponsor. I don't know, man. I don't think I would do it. I, I like having that pre-existing relationship. Well, that's like the, the um, equity multiple and realty shares, you know, those are small amounts of money and those are uh, reg. A, I think. So they, you know, there's a little risk because you're only putting a little bit in, but that's what I dislike about it is that you don't really get to talk to anybody or get to know anybody. There's a middleman between you and the operator. Yeah. Yeah. So um, regarding the, the, the passive income, the prospect of passive income through real estate uh, for busy professionals, busy accredited professionals, we've talked about syndications. Are there other strategies that uh, you find relevant or you you recommend that are passive that have passed passed your passive test criteria uh, yeah <laughs> are there others that uh, that you would recommend um, clearly not buying single families we've we've gone over that um, any others or is it just syndications well um, I mean theoretically you could get some short-term rentals and maybe have a property manager help you out with those um, that's one way, but again, um, you need to be really sure that you've got a good property manager there. Um, I'm, I'm part of a, a mastermind where there's some alternative investments, which are interesting. I haven't done them yet. Um, but there's some really interesting stuff out there. Um, ATMs, for example, something mm. I'm looking into. Um, but th- that's more to diversify, you know, so that I'm not too heavy in the real estate, but they seem pretty passive still looking into it. Does that still fall under uh, a 506, you know, uh, a syndication type of model? It's just a different asset to invest in? Actually, no, you buy the actual ATMs. So it's, a, cool. it's actually an active, it's an active business. Um, technically, it's, it's the opposite, though, because it's classified as active, but it's not. <laughs> huh. 
So that that's a great thing because it's tax benefits um, because it's an active business, but it's, um, you know, the, the, the IRS allows you to claim it as an active business, but it's more passive in nature. Interesting. So, um, I, as you're aware, and as listeners know, I ask every guest three questions at the end of the show, but I've asked you those questions already. So anybody that wants to hear the three questions, go back and listen to our interview in uh, September of 2019. You can hear the best investment, worst investment, and the most important lesson she's learned in investing. And the answers are definitely very interesting and will give you a lot more information about why uh, Vanessa recommends not buying single families uh, and, and buying into syndication. So uh, definitely recommend you go back and listen to that. Um, kind of before we close out today, I know you had something to uh, provide to our listeners. So uh, tell us about that. Oh, sure. I would love it if uh, you could check out my uh, first three chapters of my book for free, a sneak peek of the book at vmdinvesting.com slash book. And also, um, there's another page, vmdinvesting.com slash roadmap. In the book, it outlines how you can invest in um, syndications once a year, say $100,000 a year, and how after eight years, with certain assumptions, you would have over $100,000 in passive income if you reinvested. Um, this, this is the spreadsheet behind that. So you can download the spreadsheet and play with it. And it's really fun. You can change the amounts from 25K a year or 100 or 200 or whatever you think might be worth it. And it goes up to 20 years. And so it's pretty amazing if you reinvest your dividends, how how much you can make. I think that's great. I've, um, I've had feedback from listeners that really... Uh, appreciated the roadmap, appreciated the spreadsheet as well. Uh, so, you know, folks should definitely check that out. There are others out there that have found a lot of use out of it. So uh, if you're a busy professional looking to uh, make some forward projections, definitely uh, check that out, both uh, vmdinvesting.com slash book and vmdinvesting.com slash roadmap. Vanessa, thank you for joining us today. Uh, if folks want to get in touch with you, is the best place uh, VM, vmdinvesting.com? That or my email, vanessa at vmdinvesting.com. Great, great. Well, thanks for coming back again and, and talking with me. Uh, the, both these interviews have been fantastic. I'm sure investors, <laughs> investors and listeners will get a lot of value out of our conversation today. So thanks for coming back again. Thanks for having me back. All right, everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating on uh, Apple Podcasts. I want to call it iTunes. I'm going to I'm gonna bounce back and forth on, on that. But please leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. Very much appreciated. If you know anyone out there who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the fold. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, wishing you a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.